really is wonderful to be back. It's great to see all your smiley faces. We prayed a lot for you, expecting God to do wonderful things. The way I, I love the way we do church that's not built around a personality. You know, when we started our first church 40 years ago, uh, Meryl was 21, I was 24, 25, Terry and Linda were in it, and uh, I got up on Sunday celebrating the, the 40 years, and I said, you know, everyone thinks, because of the history, uh, memories are truth with imagination. We just add stuff to the truth. I said, but actually, we didn't plant Glenridge in the way you think we did. What we actually did is we were a group of mates, Terry and Linda, Chris and Merrill, a bunch of others, who just got together, we prayed together, and God began to stir our hearts to do something. We were always younger than almost all of you. We were kids. And uh, there are many parts to the story, but we emerged as the leaders. But Meryl was 21, she was in her final year at college, and did not want to lead the church. I won't use the word stubborn, but there's an emotion similar to that, that she felt not to want to lead the church. And it was in a small prayer meeting on a Saturday morning in Johannesburg, which is about six hours from Durban, where we lived, where God encountered her. Forty years later, on that morning, she surrendered to Jesus. That morning, she said yes. That morning, she set aside her own nervousness, fears, insecurities, vulnerabilities, and she said, yes. I remember coming out of the prayer meeting. Uh, I, I knew Meryl had been on her face before the Lord, and she looked at me and she said, we can go, into we can go and do this thing. Now, 40 years later, the one Sunday night, we spoke at a church of 3,000, which was one of our plants. We planted that church 25 years ago. And on the Sunday night following, we were in the church which we planted. And all four leaders who've led the community were there. And it was an incredible moment, and without wanting to exaggerate it, but it did start with someone saying yes. And you might feel ill-equipped. We did. I remember Sheena, who's just passed used to be, bring the prophetic word. We had no idea what that meant. And she always went to Isaiah, and we would look at each other and say, where's that? And she would read Isaiah, and we'd all get warm and fuzzies, and we'd be all like, oh. And we only allowed good prophecies. No one wanted bad ones. So we had good prophecies from Isaiah. We were kids. We knew nothing, but someone said yes. And I looked around this room this evening. I thought, gee, I wonder if someone has to say yes tonight and there will be a story, the fruition of which will be when Meryl and I are with Jesus. But you will get up and say, there was a meeting in a warehouse in Costa Mesa. I stubbornly dug my heels in and I said no to Jesus. But that night, Jesus met with me. And like Lydia of Acts 16, her heart opened and Paul could speak into her heart. And maybe God is opening your heart to the possibility that if you said yes, there would be massive ramifications. There is a photo, a very, very dear photograph for me, at the back of one of our deacon's homes. We didn't even use language like that. We weren't that clever. One of our leader's homes. 
And Dana was there, her older sister, Nass, and about six or seven of them. They're all kids, like my two grandkids running around here. And there was a morning that I was praying, a particular Sunday morning, and it dawned on me as I went through that particular little photograph that that group of kids who are running around snotty nose like they do, one led worship in Brisbane, Australia, one led worship in Perth, Australia, one led worship in Durban, South Africa, one led worship in London, the United Kingdom, and one led worship in Los Angeles. Why? Because someone said yes. Someone very ill-equipped, someone very vulnerable, uncertain, and insecure said yes. I don't want to overplay it, but I feel prophetically someone here or more are facing some pretty key T-junctions in the road, and everything that's shouting at you is no. Hmm. My joy is that we are 40 years after that yes. 84 church plants from one church because churches were planted and from those plants, churches were planted in I don't know how many countries around the world because someone said yes. We think our decisions are so insignificant and we never want to live a life that is, well, what could have been? Now, has there been heartache? Plenty. Disappointment, hurts, anguish, anxieties? Of course. We're busy watching a really bad movie on Netflix right now called True Spirit. Any of you seen it? It's about a 16-year-old Australian who wanted to be the youngest person ever to circumnavigate the globe in a yacht. Poorly made, but I was stunned as we looked at half of it last night. I'm not sure we could cope with all of it. But, but I was stunned with what she had to go through in the doldrums. You know what the doldrums were? I used to be a geography teacher. It's that moment in the equatorial regions where there is no climatological movement. There's no wind and there's no waves and you could just sit. And there she is alone. She's been at sea about 200 days and she's not moving. And she's alone and she's 16 years old. But she finished the race. That's historical fact. But written behind that was a yes to an adventure an historical adventure was met with the calamity that got her there. It is so good to see you. Please don't undervalue or underscore the decisions you need to make. We just don't know what the implications will be. We didn't. We were kids. Thank you, secondly, for keeping the campfire burning, so to speak. We had about four hours together yesterday uh, as an eldership team with Dana and Stu and uh, Tyler and his wife and Haley. Well, that's how he announced it. My wife and Haley, uh, we're on the eldership team. So I don't know who he's married subsequently, but with his wife and Haley. And uh, it was just an extraordinary time. Um, and where we told some stories, there are many to tell. But uh, I was so awe, in awe of God. We, we had two weeks to take a sabbatical, we couldn't prep you, we couldn't ready you, we just disappeared in a manner of speaking. And to see all of you step up, all of you own this adventure. We're not building a Sunday-centric community. I was so proud of you when I heard during the hurricane, you closed the Sunday down and said, Sam, we're going to come and serve with the homeless people. Please don't attend here when it's cool, groovy, when, when it's, it's a Sunday that works for you. 
It's really a meaningless initiative. This is an ecosystem. And in this ecosystem, which is God's way, God plants us. We are a planting of the Lord. That's Isaiah 45, is it? We're a planting of the Lord. God plants us, plants us into an ecosystem where we can flourish, where we can blossom. And to hear from them and to see some of you, without wanting to embarrass, embarrass Hannah, wherever you are, I just I looked at her and her face was right now. I want to say, girl, what have you been doing? You've been with Jesus. That's obvious. Those are the things that matter. Running a cool Sunday gig is really irrelevant. It's people encountering Jesus in a remarkable way. And I want to say thank you to you for buying into that and for doing it. Thank you for every person who served an extra set. Thank you for every public and private person. Thank you for those who laid out the tables and went to serve the homeless. Uh, or our, what do you, what, what's the, the language I'm supposed to use? Uh, homeless. Uh, our, our home free, our, our soon to get a home person. I don't know what you call it. So thank you for that. You know, there's a delightful scripture in the Psalms which says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. And we had to rest in that. The first month was in Mexico. We came back to do your wedding, which we loved. It was a great privilege. But it was just a time to rest. 40 years of ministry, and we were pretty depleted. Loved every minute. I have to tell you how much I love Jesus and how much I love his church, you and the many churches we, we work with. But we needed to rest. The second month was to refresh, which was to have experiences. I'm a very bad tourist, so when I fly into a place like I will next month, I go back to the UK. Uh, I don't do touristy things. I kind of just get in there, minister, see people, love them, have meals, preach, and then leave. So we had a time to go and adventure a little bit. Meryl's family's from Cornwall, where the pilgrims are from. And so it was beautiful to go down there and just to see where her family came from. Took us a die years and years and years ago. And then we went to Italy. When Meryl graduated from uh, her master's program to be a marriage and family therapist, I said to her, babe, I will take you to Italy. Well, it's nine years later. It's not a bad track record that I took her to Italy and we just had a fun adventure. Now, you know, there's always three levels at which God works. The first is the obvious. So you could leave tonight and go and have a pizza or taco and sit and just pontificate around, oh, that was a, that was a great evening or it was average. But that's, that's at one level. The, the, the level that is more infatuating is the level of what is God trying to do? He happens to use a keyboardist. He happens to use a 65-year-old grandpa to say some things. But, but those are all secondary. There is a God component for those who have ears, let them hear. That if you hear God tonight, He will speak to you if your ears are open to be able to engage Him in what He wants to do. And then the third is, what are the future implications for this? So it's what is obvious, what is God drilling down on? And then what are the future implications of the decisions we make tonight? And that's how we approached our sabbatical. And uh, Italy was magnificent. Uh, we went to Florence and then out to Puglia in the south. I was deeply saddened by these magnificent cathedrals, artistry exquisite, Michelangelo's David, is I was mesmerized by it. I stood there. I could have spent a day or two or three just looking at the sheer genius artistry of this remarkable artist. And uh, in fact, there was a time I said to Meryl, I can't go into another beautiful building. 
I, I was just so overwhelmed by beauty and wonder. And, and uh, it was amazing. Funny little story. We were only in Florence for about three days, and we didn't book to go and see the Domo, which is the big cathedral that dominates the Flor- Florissian landscape. And uh, so we went to buy tickets, and they said, no, look, sorry, you can't do it. It's been sold out for a month. So my wonderfully devious and conniving wife, we're sitting back at our Airbnb, and she says, Sunday it's closed, but they are Catholic. They have mass. Let's go to mass. <laughs> On Sundays, they don't want tourists, so we canned all the fanny packs. They want all the ladies to be covered. Meryl put on a fancy dress. I put on my nicest shirt and my uh, whatever pants. And we knocked on the door, and there was a big security guy there. Like, and I said, can we come to Mass? And he opened the door, and in we went to Mass. And now you're not supposed to stare because you are here for Mass. So I was kind of, my phone was videoing like this, you know. <laughs> and uh, so it's all in Italian. The whole dang thing was in Italian. (laughs) Yeah. So two things that came out of that. The one was Meryl is convinced she understood what this old, beautiful, Jesus-loving Catholic priest said. She was convinced he spoke, spoke about the prodigal son. I think it's the gift of prophecy and not accuracy. And... um, um, and, and, uh, I was, what did I do? Not much, actually. There were two reasons. Oh, I don't know what, but, but the point here, oh, that's what it was. I, I was looking at the liturgy cause I couldn't understand a word. And I realized why they have chants and liturgies. In the middle ages, most people couldn't read. They didn't have instruments. They didn't have people who could play instruments, not guaranteed, And so if I was a church father during those days in the early Middle Ages and into the Middle Ages, I would have done exactly what they did, write out the set so that someone who can read will lead those who cannot read into worship. And I said, Lord, I've been so critical of liturgy all these years, I'm so embarrassed. How ridiculous to be critical of such a powerful opportunity for people to come and gather around uh, God in worship. Month one, rest, Mexico. Month two, the UK and Italy, just to go and have different experiences. Month three was to go and reflect and review and refocus. Mauritius is our favorite destination, vacation destination. By God's kindness, we were given a seven-bedroomed house on the beach. I mean, on the beach. There wasn't even sand from the veranda. I mean, there wasn't even grass from the veranda to the sand. And we wondered why some of you weren't joining us, but hey, what can I do about that? <laughs> and then we went to the other side of the island and someone gave us a three-bedroom department and probably from here to the door away from, it was grass and then the ocean, exquisite ocean. And uh, God was just so, so good to us. There are many stories. I want to open the scriptures tonight, but what I am saying is thank you for buying in. Thank you for owning. This is a unique community. We're not building on a cool, sexy, groovy Sunday space. We're investing into lives to see lives change so that in 40 years, when you've got children and maybe your children even have children, what you will have is is an incredible... I picked up a cold on the flight on the way back. This incredible opportunity and a legacy of your children loving Jesus and being involved in the great kingdom adventures. Okay, grab your Bibles. 
Thanks, my love. I want you to go to Philippians chapter 2. Like you, Meryl and I dove into Philippians while we were on the road. Like you, we wanted to know what God was saying to us as a community. And so I thought for the first few weeks, I will just, just kind of throw my, to use an Englishism, tuppence halfpenny worth, throw in my few thoughts into this great Philippian epistle. So there it is behind me. Um, for those of you who don't know, Philippians is a four-chapter book written by Paul as a letter to a church he planted. You know what's interesting about letters? I don't know if Terry or any of the others told you, but you know that there wasn't a postal system in those days. So it wasn't like you wrote a letter and you arrived at some cool little house and someone would open like a little window and say, hi, I really want this letter to go to. Oh, that will be three shekels. And then they stamped it and it will get to Jerusalem three months later. There was no postal system unless you were an official and a wealthy person. Secondly, it was incredibly expensive because the scrolls were highly costly. So most letters were written in little slithers like this, half a page, uh, one of the theologians said. So when Paul writes four chapters, he is saying, I will spend the money to get the scroll. I will find someone who will take the months needed to get this to you because it's that important. This is not a flippant letter that my daughter in, in Perth, Australia, sent me a picture. Meryl, grandma, sent the kids two postcards, one from Italy and one from Mauritius, and they have it up on the fridge, and they're so proud, and grandma's remembered us. And Well, these were life and death things. There was no replacement. There was no photocopy. You can't cut and paste. This was it, one document carried by Epaphroditus, four chapters, because it was that important that Paul, who is in prison gets this information to them. John Tyson says this is Paul's favorite church. It's the only church, I think, for whom he does not say, I, Paul, an apostle by the will of God. He says, hi, Paul and Timothy, servants of the Most High. He loved them. He says, I, I, I carry you with the affection of Christ. Okay, let's read it. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Therefore, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want to extract just three ideas from this tonight because I would love you to fall more and more in love with Jesus. If I had to say just a handful of things, which I won't now, that we come away from our three months with, the first would be without any reserve was the exquisite Gratitude we have for the kindness, goodness, and generosity of our God. I want to tell you a quick story. When we handed our church over in 1996, we'd led it 13 years. God called us to America. And I handed over the community of about 1,000 to a 27-year-old businessman. He had never read the Bible through. I didn't know it, but he told it. He now leads that church of 3,000. But Rory has an incredible gift of faith. 
I think he's given about three cars away, one of which he had just bought. In their building fund, which they've just finished, they put up a building during COVID for cash, 91 million rand. It's hard to translate, but let's say $10 million. A man walks up to him one day, giving all of that in mind. Remember all of that. He's given Rolexes away. A man walks up to him one day and introduces himself, says, hi, my name is whatever it is. I'm the CEO of BMW South Africa. I want to give you a brand new BMW every year. Rory picked us up from the airport in this high-end SUV BMW. Those are little pictures. When you make the little decisions about generosity and kindness and extravagance and lavishness, give God something to work with. Because he does exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. So we give God little fripper, little, little, little crumbs like, uh, uh, who's Hansi and Gretel? What is it? Hansel and Gretel. We, we give him little crumbs instead of giving him opportunity to do miracles, signs, and wonders. So this passage is an exquisite passage because Tim Mackey says this is the center of gravity of Philippians. It's the passage around which everything hinges, like a bicycle wheel. This is the central part of the wheel, and everything spokes out of that. If you don't continue to grow in your love for Jesus, Paul says, oh, that I might know him. Oh, that I might love him. Oh, that I might be so absorbed with him. That's the thing that matters to me. It doesn't matter whether I'm in prison or out of prison. It doesn't matter whether I have money or don't have money, food or don't have food. None of that matters. What matters is that I might know him. Three things from this passage, firstly. In that passage, if you can throw it up again, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Did someone preach on that? Just out of interest? Okay, the Greek there for mindset is phronia. And the interesting thing with that, it's kind of one of those words that doesn't translate easily into English. It has a number of different meanings. By the way, I've really enjoyed the writings of uh, a, um, a new theologian called Nijay Gupta. I've really enjoyed his writings on the passage. But he makes the point that the same mindset means that we have the same worldview, the same way of thinking, the same essence. And I think Paul introduces this passage with this idea that we develop the same mindset as Jesus, worldview. The world around us, Paul says earlier, uh, later in the passage, he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Okay, so Meryl and I watched this show in Mauritius on Netflix called The Surgeon Cut. Anyone seen it? Four show, four episodes. Bad people. Bad, bad, bad people. Too much Strive to survive or drive to survive. Okay, I don't know what you watch. But it's basically four stories of four surgeons who have a remarkable um, journey to the climax of their profession. The second one was particularly compelling for me because it was an illegal immigrant who jumped the fence on the Mexican border 
and his story to become arguably one of the top neurosurgeons in the world. It, it is moving, it is powerful, it is sobering. But I'll tell you what caught my attention, and I get very skittish with medical things. I do not dig it. I, I do not dig it. I'm having a cancer cut out of my nose tomorrow, and I do not dig it. But basically what he does, they tell his story, and then they journey you through a couple, and he's doing surgery, the doctor is, surgeon is, on this man. And they found a tumor on his brain. And so he walks him through it, and there is this vulnerable moment, for me anyway, where he says to the wife who's holding on to her husband, and he's sitting there as stony-faced as he can be, and she says, well, basically, your, your husband will not come back the same, or words to that effect. And then they put him under, they anesthetize him, and they drill a hole in his skull. And then they bring him around. While they're doing, they're cutting the tumor out of his brain because they've got to make sure they don't damage any other part of the brain and so there's someone sitting there with him uh, and when the doctor says we're going to whatever part of the brain and then this guy this medical person would see if he's triggering is he speaking is he responding is that a good moment and I sat and watched this this man is awake he is aware not feeling the pain but aware of everything happening around him his brain is open and the doctor is pulling off the tumor piece by piece, moving the flap of the brain, finding another piece, talking to him all the time. How are you doing? Are you okay? And folks, I, it was like a little moment of revelation to me. That's what the sovereign, holy surgeon does with us. We are the product of a warped and crooked generation. We are the product of that. And the problem oftentimes is when we get saved, we think we're going to live happily ever after. And then comes the time where Jesus, the surgeon, says, oh, please sit down. I'm going to do some surgery on you. And oh, by the way, you're going to be awake. And I'm going to take a piece of bone from your skull, and I'm going to cut away the warped uh, and crooked generation out from you because I want to give you a mindset that is the same as Christ Jesus. Now, you know how offensive it was to the people in Philippi. Augustus the Caesar had given Philippi the status of being a place, and you all know this from the preaching, where the senior, successful military, the centurions and whatever, went to live. They were given no taxes. They were given land. They were given prestige, honor, uh, rank. It was new money. People postured. It was a place of high political influence, et cetera, et cetera. That's the warped, crooked generation. They come to Christ. Oh, it's a great gospel. Christ is mentioned 36 times in four chapters. This is a great gospel. And then suddenly they sit with the divine surgeon and say, you've got a tumor, buddy. That pornography, we've got to cut it out. No, 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 no. I, 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 just, I just want to be cool. I, I, I don't, I don't, I just want to be cool. And he says, no, we have to. And I've seen over the 40 years the disappointment in the faces of many who responded in a moment of kind of charismatic euphoria, put their hand up and said, Jesus, yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus. And then one day, there is the appointment with the surgeon. 
the tumor on your head. We've got to remove it or it will kill you. Having the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's a very disappointing moment for all of us. Very disappointing. It's where we face the harsh reality that something has to go, but no one told us ahead of time. And invariably, we feel deep disappointment, even disgruntlement towards God. This is too hard. Now, remember who we're talking about. I'm not... I'm going to do one point and we're done. We can do more next time. They knew money. They've just got land. They got position. Uh, one of the theologians said they've got postal code envy. They live in the right places. They're successful. They strut walking around town with their medals. We're the man. Hail to Caesar. Caesar's their God. And now what? You wanting me to do what? Caesar got me this land. Caesar got me this money. Caesar got me this honor. And now you say I've got to worship Jesus. And what does he do? He leaves his bling. Nijay Gupta again. He left heaven. We have spent our lifetime wanting to create bling, position, honor, uh, profile, influence. And the Jesus you're calling me to serve humbled himself, became a slave. No, 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 that wasn't put in the gospel. And my dear friends, I say this with deep fatherly affection. We all face that. Where Jesus deeply disappoints us. We don't want him to. But what he asks of us is just too costly. Come lie down. I'm going to drill a hole in your head. And I'm going to remove the tumor that basically is destroying you. Definitely not. Definitely not. Or, please, no matter how traumatic or painful it might, please do that. Having the same mindset of Christ, that is my ask of you as I ask it of myself. Next week we'll explore Jesus more in this book as the Gravitas, the anchor, the gravitorial pull of the letter. But can I ask, as we come to the table, that you would say, Jesus, okay, as traumatic and disappointing as it is, I let you do your surgery on me because I want every ounce. It was so amazing. If you watch it, it's not necessarily the highest level of cinematography, but if you see it and you look as they move and flap, maybe I'm just squeamish. In Afrikaans, we say, may do it. It's like, I can't do it. And they move the brain and he says, he says, look, look, as he shows the cameraman. And he goes in there with these little fine tweezer kind of things and he pulls it off one at a time. I said, oh, this is looking good. This is looking good as he throws another piece of cancer onto the little bowl. That's the invitation. The same mindset as Christ. Let's pray together.